So the Magnificat, we might ask ourselves, why do we call it the Magnificat? I was just talking with uh, Aidan uh, about the Benedictus because Benedictus in Latin means blessed. Um, and that comes, of course, from the first line or the first word in the Latin translation of it. So Magnificat is also the first Latin word in the Latin version of this, the title that was used by monastics for hundreds of years. And it comes from the word magnificare, magnificare, which means to magnify or to glorify or to extol, to praise. The title comes from the first line of the song, Mary Sings, and reflects the central theme, God's greatness and the importance of faith in him. God is the main character in the Magnificat, with special emphasis on his mercy and justice and power. I read the story about a medieval king in Europe somewhere, I don't remember if it was Germany or France, who, uh, who, ha- who commissioned a translation of the Magnificat into the, into the common tongue so that he could understand what it meant. And when he read it, he said, yeah, we're not going to let people read this because they might get some ideas. <laughs> so the song expresses what should be, I think, the default human response to God. Not just praise, that's certainly part of it, but wander at the salvation that God initiates through his power. The title and the first line in which that word is ensconced sets the tone for the whole song, accentuating Mary's deep sense of awe and reverence for God and her commitment to living a life that magnifies that greatness. My soul doth magnify the Lord. My spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Like all of the great scriptures, the Magnificat comes to us in a particular historical context. The source for our historical context of the hymn is the Gospel of St. Luke, which, as I said, is a very Marian gospel. My theory is that Mary is one of the main sources that Luke used to compose the gospel. Theologically, I think you could also argue that the Gospel of John is very influenced by Our Lady, Because at the cross, you know, there's that moment where Jesus says, behold your mother, behold your son, when he's talking to the apostle John. Um, So John cared for Mary. Uh, Her house is in Ephesus where John ministered. Um, And so we think that, um, that there was a very close relationship there, but that's probably another topic for another retreat. But the material in Luke that precedes Jesus' birth, particularly these stories about, about Mary, but also about Elizabeth, they had to come to us from somewhere. Where did they come from? And I don't think it's entirely true, but I have, I have seen it proposed that perhaps Mary actually is the author of Luke's gospel. Um, again, I don't think that's true, but uh, I think probably the most reasonable explanation for where Luke comes from is not only was it an apology for Christians to read um, in a compilation of sources, but it also could have been a document that Luke wrote in order to, um, to basically attest to Paul's character while he was in prison on trial. Um, But it's interesting to note that the gospel gives special attention to women, particularly those from the margins of their society. So one can imagine St. Luke sitting down with Mary and interviewing her. I imagine a quite lengthy interview, one where Luke was furiously scribbling notes and being very careful to record everything that she provided by way of details. In the Gospel of St. Luke, we have the beautiful story of the Annunciation. It only appears in the Gospel of St. Luke, Chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. At the Annunciation, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, and he gives us the great words of the beautiful Hail Mary prayer when he greets her. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Then he tells her that she's going to bear a child who shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest, 
And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. An explicit fulfillment of the prophecy from 2 Samuel that we talked about earlier when God gives David the covenant. It's in response to the angel's words, the promise that Gabriel makes to her, that Mary offers what's called her fiat, her consent. She says, be it done unto me according to thy word. This, in and of itself, this very simple sentence, is really the model prayer for all Christians everywhere. Be it done unto me according to thy word. At the Annunciation, Mary shows us what active receptivity looks like. She receives what God has planned for her, and then she participates in that plan. It's for this reason, alongside the fact that this ascent leads to the birth of our Lord, that she has been highly venerated by Christians from the very beginning. Immediately following the Annunciation, we're told that Mary went with haste to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who was pregnant with John the Baptist. You know, there are some Christians who say we shouldn't baptize babies because babies can't have faith. And of course, the problem with that is that babies are human. They suffer from the same needs that all humans have, and all humans need the gospel. Let the little children come unto me, Jesus says. And here we have an example when Mary visits Elizabeth of a child having faith. Because what happens when Mary walks into the house? The baby, John the Baptist, still in utero, leaps in the womb causing Elizabeth to cry the beautiful words that make up the second part of the Hail Mary prayer. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. She goes on to say, And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in mine ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. And blessed is she that believed, for there shall be a performance of those things which were told her from the Lord. Here we understand that Mary is the most blessed woman to ever live. She is the new tabernacle. She is the mother of God who literally houses our Lord in her womb. And the prophecy of Elizabeth, I think, helps us to see Mary for what she is, a vessel whose whole being is set apart by the grace of God as a means to bring about our salvation. And it's interesting to note that both Elizabeth and Mary have prophecies that precede the birth of their sons. Now, it's important for us to remember God could have brought about our salvation in any way that he chose. There are a whole host of ways that he could have redeemed the world. But he does what he did because he was, he was reversing the fall. It was about fittingness. So one of the prefaces of the Holy Communion service from the Missal, the one that we use at at Maundy Thursday says, Because by the tree of the cross thou hast wrought the salvation of the race of man, that whence death arose, thence also life might rise again, and that he who by a tree was once the vanquisher might also by a tree be vanquished through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is a reversal there, right? The tree caused us to fall, but the tree of life is the cross. In a similar way, the church father Origen says that this is important because sin began with Eve and spread to man, so salvation begins with women and spreads to men. Eve was the mother of the living through procreation. Mary is the spiritual mother of all of us who are alive via the regeneration of the Holy Ghost received at baptism. 
Eve was tested and sinned in the garden. Mary was tested by the angel and assented to God's work through obedience. Eve longed for a savior. Mary delivers us our savior and always points to him. Mary is the new Eve. This is why, this is why St. Paul makes a rather puzzling claim in 1 Timothy 2.15. He says, women shall be saved in childbearing. And you read that and you think, what does that mean? Does that mean that every woman should have as many children as humanly possible and hope it's enough children to be saved? I don't think so. I hope that's not true. What it means is that through the childbearing of a woman, salvation has been brought to us. The woman is saved through childbearing because of Mary bearing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Childbearing of the woman undoes the transgression of our primal parents. And so we see that Elizabeth recognizes, at least in part, the significance of this moment of Mary's role in the history of our salvation. And it's in response to Elizabeth that Mary then launches into this beautiful song, the Magnificat. Now, it might be helpful to consider what is the essence of the Magnificat? St. Augustine once said that the Magnificat of Mary is the Magnificat of the church, a long patristic and medieval tradition of seeing the church and Mary as, as intricately related in terms of type. Thomas Aquinas agrees, saying it's the song of the church and the song of the soul, expressing their joy and gratitude for the coming of the Savior. For some church fathers, the emphasis of the canticle is on human weakness and divine strength. We might think of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who claimed that the Magnificat is a beautiful hymn of humility in which Mary gives glory to God and acknowledges her own lowliness. Gregory of Nyssa says, in this hymn of joy, Mary declares the greatness of God and his power to save. For other church fathers, the Magnificat is about Mary's courage. St. Ambrose says the Magnificat is a song of courage in which Mary teaches us to trust in God, even in the face of adversity. But I think St. Hilary of Potier cuts directly to the heart of the song when he says that the Magnificat is a song of love in which Mary expresses her love for God and her devotion to his will. Now, of course, none of these themes are exclusive with the others. Yes, Mary's song is the song of the church. It is about her humility before God. It's about God's greatness. But what binds all of these themes together is a more central theme, the theme of love. Now, it should be said in the handout that I gave you draws this a little bit clearer that the Magnificat is not entirely unique. This is probably not something Mary just came up with uh, out of the blue, but rather it draws heavily from Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. Of course, you know the story of Hannah and her son Eli. Hannah was barren. Her husband had two wives. One of the wives was, was able to produce children. Hannah, of course, is always on, kind of on the outside of this relationship because she can't bear children. And so she goes to the temple where she prays earnestly, so earnestly that the priest who's working in the temple says, are you drunk? Get out of here. You know, and, and of course, then she explains what's going on and, and God gives her a son. And, and part of her promise with God is if she would get a son, she would give him back to God. So that son becomes Eli, right? Uh, or not Eli, that son is Samuel. Eli's the priest. Uh, and so, uh, so she gives him back. There's a really cute passage where she talks about making a little ephod for him, you know, you, you, like, like a little uh, cassock, you know, for a, for a young boy or something like that. And he goes to the temple where he, he's raised and, and learns to serve the Lord. So we can see that, um, that in the Song of Hannah, there is an, a number of, of parallels here. 
Um, and, and historically, and I, I won't go into all of them. I mean, you can kind of see them just in the very structure and in the phrasing that, that Hannah uses. Historically, while the contexts are different, Hannah and Mary have a number of parallels. So, for example, they're both writing or both singing at times of, of kind of instability, really. Um, you know, Hannah's at a time when, when Israel is in a state of unrest. They're without a king. And Mary also is writing at a, or singing at a time when there's no real king in Israel. In fact, the, the Jews are occupied by the Romans at this time. As such, I think both have a, maybe a keener dependence on God than someone who isn't on the margins would fully be able to grasp. Both Hannah's song and the Magnificat are about power, the power of God, and his sovereignty, particularly in terms of reversal. He raises up the lowly and he puts down the mighty. This means that God's will and the significance of humility are front and center in both hymns. And of course, they come to the fore in both through the birth of a child, where previously it would have been thought no child was possible, right? Hannah, because of barrenness, God creates life where there is no life, and Mary, because of her virginity. So it's quite clear that Mary's song is highly influenced by Hannah's. In fact, I've seen some speculate that the Magnificat may have been a lullaby that Mary actually sang to the baby Jesus, heavily drawing from Hannah's song. I don't know that there's any textual evidence for that, but I quite like the idea that that's what it is. Before we get into the actual text of the Magnificat, I did want to say a quick word about how it's used in the Anglican tradition. Um, As Anglicans, like I said, we say morning and evening prayer every day, and part of that cycle are the canticles that we're discussing today. And the canticles are read, like we did this morning, after each scripture reading. There are two scripture readings, first canticle and second canticle, uh, after each reading, respectively. Um, Traditionally, Roman Catholics also pray the Magnificat at at their version of evening prayer, um, evensong, Um, but mainly in monastic traditions whereas we inherited it through the prayer book, like I said, for, uh, for lay people to pray. Now, of course, the Puritans, when they were trying to take over the Church of England, did try to remove the Magnificat from the prayer book. Um, fortunately, they were not successful. Um, so we pray the Magnificat after the first of two readings during evening prayer. The first reading generally comes from the Old Testament. The second reading generally comes from the New Testament. The Magnificat, then, is situated in the same place as Mary. Mary is the instrument whereby God moves salvation history from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so we memorialize her song in between our Old Testament readings and our New Testament readings. So the Magnificat really is part of who we are as Anglicans, teaching us about Mary's role in salvation and about how God worked through her. So let's jump into the text a little bit and and just kind of go line by line and see what it is that that Mary is singing about. Um, So the first kind of stanza, my soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, raises a question about what it means to magnify the Lord. Because as as Christians, we believe that, that we don't make God greater or lesser through our actions, right? God doesn't need us. He's not dependent on us. And so God is God, whether we recognize it or not. He's not Tinkerbell. You know, if only you believe, then he can fly. You know, it just doesn't work that way. God is immutable. He's the same always and ever. He's self-sufficient. What Origen, the church father, reminds us of is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, something that St. Paul says. And we are, as human beings, created in that image, 
So we are images of the image of God, an image of an image, right? And so when we shape our soul into the image of Christ, we can have a small or a large image, you know, depending on how faithful we are to the image of Christ. We can have a dirty and dingy image, or we can have a very clear, clean image. So we magnify the Lord when we make the image of the image that is our souls large through our works, through our thoughts, through our speech. In other words, Mary's soul magnifies the Lord because of her godliness. She exemplifies what redeemed humanity looks like. In fact, this idea of image is made more interesting. These are the kind of questions that keep me up at night, actually. It's made more interesting when we consider the fact that Jesus has no biological father. Jesus has no biological father, which means whose genes did he have? Only Mary's. Where the Y chromosome came from is the thing that keeps me up at night, but that's, God's powerful enough for that. But the point is that Mary's genes were Jesus's genes and vice versa, right? So if you're looking at the face of Mary, whose face are you also looking at? Her son. And if you're looking at the face of her son, whose face are you also looking at? Mary's. So of all the people who ever lived, Mary magnifies the Lord because she so clearly and obviously always points us to her son, even down to the very basis of how she looks. She points us to him. And so it's our job then as Christians to magnify the Lord through our works, becoming conformed to the image of Christ. For he hath regarded the lowliness of his handmaiden. The second stanza, humility is a virtue. In the ancient world, humility, at least this kind of humility, really wasn't a virtue, right? You, the virtue was being powerful, being renowned, being a hero through slaughtering people on the battlefield, you know. Uh, but no, the lowliness of his handmaiden is a virtue. And of course, Jesus exemplifies this virtue as well. Matthew eleven twenty nine: I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What do we mean by humble? We mean someone who's willing to lower themselves for others, someone who's willing to self-sacrifice for others. So Mary is humble in her submission to God for the life of the world. Jesus is humble because of his willingness to go all the way to the cross. He didn't count equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking the form of the servant and going all the way to death, even death on a cross. And we also see in her humility, God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness to her because God sees her her lowliness and he rewards it. He raises up the lowly. For behold, from henceforth, the third stanza, all generations shall call me blessed. Blessed art thou amongst women, a prayer that's been said by all generations of Christians. Mary is the mother of God. No one has occupied such a unique position And so she's blessed for that. And we recognize her as blessed for that. She's been afforded a very special grace by God to do what she did. For he that is mighty hath magnified me and holy is his name. So at the beginning, her soul magnifies the Lord. And in that magnification, she becomes magnified. She becomes lifted up as very important and holy is his name. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. And everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. It's an exercise in recognizing her dependence on God and God's ultimate strength. He has acted in a holy and righteous way to bring about our salvation. 
through his son Jesus, who comes to us through the womb of the Virgin Mary. And his mercy is on them that fear him throughout all generations. Mary sees bigger than just her own immediate situation, her own immediate circumstances. God's mercy is not just for her, it's for all who fear him. And the cool thing is, she sees even in this moment that this isn't a contemporary movement, this isn't a passing fad, it's an enduring feature of reality available to all who turn to faith in God in obedience. He has showed strength with his arm, the sixth stanza. He has scattered the proud in the imaginations of their hearts. God's strength has defeated the proud and the arrogant. We might think of Psalm 2, where the main character also is Jesus, because Jesus is the main character of all the Psalms. Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. David Smith and I were talking in between this session and the last session. And, you know, one of the themes in the Benedictus was this idea of deliverance from enemies. Deliverance from enemies. And that's a common feature in the Psalms. We might think of David. You know, he's running away from Saul. He's, he's got the war with his son Solomon. He's got the Philistines and, you know, many other enemies, right? And so he takes comfort in the fact that God protects him from his enemies. Those of us who pick up the Psalms today, we're far removed from that context. We're not being hunted by Canaanites or by Philistines or by, uh, you know, rebel Israelites, right? So what are our enemies? Well, the church fathers remind us that Satan, those, those are about Satan, and those are about our vices. And so when we talk about he, he scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts, there is the sense in which, yes, God is sovereign over the nations, God's sovereign over rulers, God puts them in their place, he raises up empires, he puts them down. That's certainly true, but it's also true in our own hearts, isn't it? That, that he's scattered the proud, he he's, he's takes our vices and he purges them, and then he gives us virtue. And of course, this is not how the world works naturally, or how we think the world works naturally. And this is why I think St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 goes out of his way to point out, the preaching of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And Mary, from her unique perspective, sees this very clearly because she understands she's one of those weak instruments used to bring about salvation. She's a poor, uneducated young girl from occupied Palestine, and yet she's the God-bearer. Wow. Truth is stranger than fiction. He hath put down the mighty from their seat and hath exalted the humble and meek. The end of Malachi, which we read just a minute ago about John the Baptist, He's preparing the way of the Lord before the great day of the Lord, a great and terrible day, Malachi calls it. It's a day of judgment. This is a common prophetic image throughout the Old Testament, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And you kind of see this with people, you know, there's always this kind of longing for the end, you know, if only Jesus would come back. And the assumption is that when Jesus comes back, I'm going to be one of the ones that kind of get put right. But really, the great and terrible day of the Lord is a warning for all of us. Because we don't know, we have to be self-critical and self-reflective. Which side are we on? 
So we might not, wanna, we might not want to uh, rush that too much, depending on where we are. And so this is, this is the day of the Lord, right? He put, down, he put down the mighty from their seat. He'll exalt the humble and meek. The, the eschatological day is here. And it's important to note that when God makes his judgment, he's not basing it on worldly power or status. He's not basing it on who has the most toys or the most money or the most political power. Quite the opposite. It's the hungry. It's the, it's the humble. So the state of one's heart, one's relationship with God, those are the ultimate metrics. Everything else is either unimportant or even worse, a distraction. And that leads us to the eighth stanza. He hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. Mary recognizes that God's power and provision are extended to those in need. He filled the hungry with good things is true in a material sense, of course. A good reminder as we enter Lent, where one of our disciplines that we should be practicing is almsgiving, giving to the poor. But this is also true in a sacramental sense. God has filled us with good things in the Eucharist, where he gives us his very self, his body and his blood, his soul and divinity. And of course, I'm reminded of the words of Martin Luther here. Um, who I don't quote often, but he, 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 has this, um, he has this phrase where he's talking about in 1 Corinthians, you know, there's the abuse of the Eucharist that's occurring in these communities. And so what you would have is the, the wealthier people would go first and they'd eat and drink, get drunk, you know, and then there's nothing left for the other people in the church. And Luther uses that as a reminder to us that we, if we come strolling to the Lord's table thinking, I deserve this, uh, you know, that, that, that everything is good, I'm, 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 I'm worthy of this, uh, then we should probably refrain. But if we're broken, if we're contrite, if we, if we think, oh, should I even, am I even worthy to, to go up and receive, then we're the ones who need it. Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only and my soul shall be healed. Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only and my soul shall be healed. Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak the word only and my soul shall be healed. And so we can follow Origen's encouragement. You may approach the Lord as a weak man. Of course, the funny thing about that encouragement is that you always are approaching the Lord as a weak man. You don't always recognize that you're the weak man. But when we recognize that, it really helps draw out our dependence on him. We're the hungry and we come to him to be filled with good things. We're not gonna find the good things out there, in money or power or whatever, hedonism, we find the good things here, there. He, remembering his mercy, hath holpen his servant Israel as he promised to our forefathers Abraham and his seed forever. There's a sense in which this is a past tense, right? God did make this promise to Abraham and his seed. He has helped his servant Israel in Mary and in Jesus and in bringing about our salvation. That's certainly true. But the thing is that we are Israel. Paul says the true Israel of God in Galatians. And so this is in some ways an ongoing reality. Yes, God was faithful. God did come to us in the form of Jesus Christ, but he continues to help his servant Israel over and over and over again, always finding, counting himself to be faithful. And like we said earlier, 
through Jesus, all promises made to Israel in the Old Testament are fulfilled. And we live as recipients of those promises. And so a few takeaways from this, uh, from this session, I think. Mary, Mary, we should remember, is a model of faith and devotion for us. You know, of course, we look primarily to the cross. We look primarily to the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for everything. But the beauty of the church and the church calendar is that we recognize that in different contexts and in different time periods, there have been great saints who have shown us what it means to live like Jesus lived. And so Mary is really another example that we can always turn to. In in other words, they flesh out for us our, our sanctified imaginations, right? What did it look like for her to follow that call? Be it unto me according to thy word. And then as we study people who have responded that way, we begin maybe in our own context to say, what does it look like for me to say, be it unto me according to thy word? And so she teaches us to magnify the Lord through our works, through our speech, through our thought life. The way that we are, we should always be seeking to enlarge that image in our souls, like Origen says, to clean it off right, from all the dirt and dinge that we've acquired through our sins. She teaches us to be humble, acknowledge our lowliness and our weakness and our dependence on God. This is one of the things that I think uh, if you do morning and evening prayer regularly, it gets inculcated in you, this idea that you know, we are the people of his, of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Everything that we have, we have because God gives it to us. And, so, and, and, and also a reason why uh, Thanksgiving is so important. Like I said, try and write down all the things you're thankful for, and eventually you basically have to say everything. My very existence As a corollary to that, I think, Mary teaches us to trust in God's provision and promises because God is faithful. I mean, I think we, there's still stigma in some places at least, you know, about someone who who might be an unwed mother. Less so now, but certainly uh, within the past 50 to 100 years there was. Think about it in terms of this particular culture, though. I mean, Mary is embarking on a very sort of dangerous a mission. I mean, you even see it with the way Joseph responds. I mean, he's, he's a nice guy, but his plan is to divorce her uh, until the angel shows up. I mean, a divorced woman in that time of day uh, would not have been cared for, you know, very well. Um, and so Mary is stepping out in faith with boldness and receiving this call from God, this commission from God, her vocation. God provided for her. He provided for her. Do we trust God in the same way? When God calls us to do something, are we willing with such boldness to embrace what he's offering us for us to do? Be it unto me according to thy word. We talked yesterday in our Bible study about Acts when St. Paul, uh, after his Damascus Road experience, and he, you know, he's blind and he's in a house and God says, wait, I'll send someone to you. And so he picks Ananias, who's a Christian, and God says, Ananias. I have a job for you. And Ananias responds the same way all the Old Testament prophets respond when they're called, here I am, Lord. Here I am, Lord. And then God tells him what he's going to do. I need you to go to Saul and minister to him. And Ananias is like, uh, I wish you told me that before. I said, here I am. But he does go, right? He does go. And when he goes, God is faithful. And his ministry is effective in St. Paul's life. And of course, Ananias then you know, becomes the guy who, who basically 
uh, ministered to the guy, right? Um, and so, so God does that for us. He calls us to do things. And sometimes we might say, that makes no sense. I don't understand how that's going to work. We're called to respond in faith. We're called to respond in faith. Mary also reminds us that the day of the Lord sets things right. It sets things right. It's a process that involves reversal because the mighty are put down and the humble are lifted up, which means what should be our business right now? Humbling ourselves, right? We can long for that reversal, but if we're trapped on the wrong side, then it's not going to be very pleasant for us. And so we listen to what Jesus says. The last will be first. The first will be last. We look at his example on the cross, humbling himself, dying for us. And so we hopefully are able to crucify our own sinful flesh, sacrifice ourselves for the needs of others. And as a corollary to that, I think Mary does remind us that God cares for the poor and the downtrodden and the outcast, right? There's a preferential option for the poor. And so reminds us of our calling to advocate for justice and show compassion and care and love to those in need. There is a sense in which these are spiritual Realities. There are also senses in which the spiritual and the material realities are very interrelated. And so I think that this, this prayer has many different facets. It's like a gym and you hold it up in the light and you can kind of turn it. And as you turn it, the light refracts different ways and you see different things. And I think we've only scratched the surface here. But that's why we pray it every day. <laughs> because... You're not the same person you were yesterday when you prayed that prayer. And it might hit you a little differently this time. And you might see something jump out from the page that you never saw before. But these themes, this idea of magnifying God through our humility, trusting in him for our provision, anticipating the great reversal of his justice, caring for those who are in need, these are, these are always important themes for us. Because he's filled the hungry with good things, and we are the hungry who have been filled. So any, uh, any questions, uh, comments, concerns, or complaints as we end this session together? Let's take a, uh, let's take a little longer of a break, uh, maybe... It's 10.23, so maybe we could get back around 10.40, um, and then Deacon David will present on the nuke dimittis. Um, and uh, who knows, maybe we'll get out here a little early. No pressure. <laughs> we can get out early. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So we'll see you back at 10.40.